You're listening to The Globalist, first broadcast on the 14th of November 2022 on Monocle 24. The Globalist, in association with UBS. This is The Globalist, broadcasting to you live from Midori House in London. I'm Georgina Godwin. On the show ahead, we'll find out what lies behind the migrant row prompting the worst crisis between Italy and France since 2019 and how it's impacting on the European Union. Then to Israel, as Benjamin Netanyahu is mandated to form what will probably be the most right-wing government in the country's history. We'll head to COP27 to hear about Britain's commitment to reverse deforestation from the UK's Climate and Environmental Minister of State. We pulled together the forest package at COP26, so we feel a responsibility to make sure it happens. But it's also an international priority for us, climate change. Zach Goldsmith there, speaking to us from Sharm el-Sheikh. Then to the US, as the Democrats narrowly win control of the Senate and what that means for the future of the GOP. Also ahead... Korean has a very different word order than English. Sometimes you have to kind of twist and make it sound slightly unnatural in English, but if the timing is right, then it's worth that slight awkwardness. We speak to the translator of Parasite and the upcoming film Broker about the art of subtitles. With a rustle through the front pages and a check-in on the economy, that's all ahead here on The Globalist, live from London. First, a look at what else is happening in the news. Ukraine's President Vladimir Zelensky has accused Russian forces of committing hundreds of war crimes in the city of Kherson. Turkish police have arrested a suspect following yesterday's bomb attack in Istanbul. Six people were killed and dozens more were injured in the explosion. And US Republicans have become embroiled in a row over who was to blame for the party's poor performance in midterm elections. Do stay tuned to Monocle 24 throughout the day for more on those stories. Now, Italy's new right-wing government has vowed to clamp down on migration. This has exacerbated the already tense relationship with France, with Giorgia Maloney, Italy's Prime Minister, accusing France of an aggressive and incomprehensible attitude after France criticised Italy for refusing to let a migrant vessel dock. France has now suspended a plan to take in 3,500 refugees currently in Italy and is threatening to withdraw its ambassador. Enrico Franceschini is London correspondent for La Repubblica and he joins me on the line now. Enrico, many thanks for coming on The Globalist once again. This row centres on the vessel Ocean Viking, carrying 230 people seeking asylum. Can you give us the background to this, please? Yes, Georgina. The numbers tell the story. In 2022, uh, about 90,000 illegal migrants arrived in Italy. Is the first country in Europe, the country has had more migrants arriving. So this, in a way, explains why there is a crisis uh, in, in the Italian politics about this problem. At the same time, uh, Italy is only fourth in Italy for asylum requests, uh, with 45,000. For example, France is about 100,000, Germany 150,000, which means that uh, uh, only a part of migrants then stay in Italy, and, and about half of them 
uh, go are, are distributed, so to speak, to other European countries. So there is a bit of hypocrisy in the alarm of the Italian government. And third, if we look at the proportion of migrants uh, with the population of a country, Italy is only the 15th country in Europe for number of asylum requests, with one every uh, 1,300 1, uh, people, uh, in, uh, inhabitants, while France is one every 600. So it is a crisis in a way for domestic consumption in Italy. Giorgia Meloni has uh, uh, two allies, in particular one, Matteo Salvini in government, the leader of Lega, uh, of the League Party, who are very much against uh, the uh, illegal migration and has to show uh, to his, uh, its electorate that is taking a stronger line than the previous Draghi government. Mm. What's happened to this vessel, Ocean Viking, and the people that it was carrying? It's now been allowed to dock in France, I understand. Yes, it has arrived in France, and uh, so, so to speak, the crisis is, is solved for the people aboard. Italy has, uh, has given hospitality, has, has, has allowed another ship to dock because it had uh, several people in, in uh, young people, uh, women, and several people in very bad health conditions. It must be said that France also is playing this crisis for domestic consumption up to a point because uh, President Macron is very much uh, uh, criticized by its own right uh, uh, parties like uh, Marie Le Pen parties uh, for uh, um, giving uh, refugees uh, uh, a, a soft uh, um, position, so to speak, to, to let them come more than the, the, the right in, in France would like to. And so he has to play, uh, you know, to criticize Italy uh, even for a single incident and makes a big fuss about it, about this. Uh, th- there was, in, in this crisis, my view, Georgina, who is without seeing cast the first mm-hmm. stone? We can see that uh, with what is happening in uh, the UK, with the Rwanda uh, quarrel about uh, migrants being sent to Africa, or the new agreement signed, uh, it's today's the first, uh, the first news of today, an agreement with France uh, to have more patrols in the channel to avoid migrants uh, invading the UK, to quote what uh, uh, Interior Minister Braverman uh, uh, called uh, it. So uh, it's, it's the problem for all of Europe, uh, and Europe should try really to solve it uh, together. France, though, seems to be taking a, a, a quite a stern attitude with Italy. I mean, for instance, they were going to take in 3,500 migrants, uh, and they've refused to do that now. Why, why is there this, this reaction that's, that's really hurting the, the migrants and not the country? See, yes, in fact, you're right. They, they even closed the border between Italy and uh, France in the northern Mediterranean near the city of Ventimiglia uh, and, and, uh, to, uh, as a retortion, a reprisal against uh, the Italian position on the Viking ship. In, in my view, it has more to do with politics. Uh, as I said, Macron wants to show uh, he is not uh, weak, in the relationship uh, with Meloni, even though they met right after the uh, Meloni's victory, they met in Rome, and, and Macron seemed to, you know, to shake her hand uh, and to uh, be ready to have a relationship with her. Maybe not as good, certainly not as good as he had with uh, Mario Draghi, 
but uh, to continue the, the tradition of good uh, um, relationship with the two countries. <clears throat> Other European countries are also uh, taking a hard line against uh, uh, Meloni. Spain, for example, criticized uh, the attitude uh, toward migrants. The problem is there is uh, an agreement at the European level that uh, the countries closer uh, the, uh, to a ship in, in peril should let them uh, have a safe uh, approach uh, and safe uh, arrival in, and then to send the migrants to uh, in, in different countries uh, to share this problem. Uh, Italy, Greece, Cyprus and Malta uh, signed the common declaration two days ago saying we have uh, uh, geographical, we, geographically we are closer to Northern Africa, we're taking too much uh, migrants because of this and not always uh, uh, the distribution in other countries, not always respected. But uh, um, uh, in, in my view, and not only in my view, the Italian president of the Republic uh, underlined, uh, Sergio Mattarella, he underlined that uh, we need to have a European position in this a European policy that should be articulated in different uh, matters. One is, of course, to the sh sharing equally the migrants uh, that arrive. The second one is to fight the traffickers who take advantage of this. Uh, the third is to find agreements with, with North African countries so that the problem is dealt with on their territory, not in the sea where there is the peril of, of death for the migrants. And the fourth, as a long term, is economic help so that all these masses of people are not forced uh, to leave uh, and uh, look for a, a better future in Europe. Mm. Uh, Enrico, what about this crisis though between France and Italy? Because now it's, it's escalated uh, diplomatically too. I mean, is this something that's going to simmer down? Uh, I think my, if, I, if I put my money on it, it will... Uh, it will be, you know, it, it will go down the crisis. There will not be an escalation. I might be wrong, but I don't think in the end France will withdraw uh, its ambassador. It's not in their interest either. There are so many uh, common problems that uh, needs to be shared. And Italy will also uh, take steps uh, to, to tell France uh, uh, that uh, they, they want a uh, a friendly relationship and they don't want to escalate. Uh, after all, the, the new Italian foreign minister, uh, Tajani, is the former president of uh, the European Parliament. Um, he um, belongs to Silvio Berlusconi's party, Forza Italia. He's uh, more of a moderate in the coalition. Uh, and I, I bet he's trying in these hours uh, to operate for, for, a, for a solution. Meloni is on her way to Bali to the G20 meeting, where we'll, she will have a lot of bilateral meetings, apparently not with Macron, but perhaps behind the scenes something will move. Uh, and I mean, as you've pointed out, this is very much politics driven. What we're looking at here, though, is people who are desperately in need, who need to get away from, from where they are currently, uh, whilst trying to mitigate any negative consequences for the host country. But it does seem to me that there's a huge problem ar around language and attitude with this. Uh, uh, Suella Braverman calling people hordes, uh, that these words like invasion. I, I, I think it's, it's not helpful, surely, to really dehumanise people who are desperately need our help definitely you're definitely right it, it it's it's not the language is not helpful but the language in my view tells the story 
more than than what is going to happen in in, in a concrete way. Uh, if we look uh, on long long term, the migration has not been slowed down uh, in Europe. Uh, maybe it, it has actually increased. In the UK, there are more migrants this year than last year. In Italy, all over Europe. Uh, the language at the same time has become stronger because it's the same thing uh, that is happening since Brexit, since Trump in the US, uh, uh, in times, in difficult times, difficult economic times, uh, people tend to uh, blame uh, foreigners, they tend to blame another, another, other countries. Uh, and then now the, the migrants become the, you know, the problem for Europe when, when the problems are uh, different. The people are suffering economically for 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 many other causes, uh, and uh, and uh, so the, the the language becomes more rhetoric. There is an escalation, and uh, it, which is not helpful because uh, uh, actually Europe uh, is an aging uh, continent and <laughs> and needs young uh, young people uh, to 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 fill uh, the the demand for certain jobs. Absolutely. Enrico, thank you very much indeed. That's Enrico Francesini there from La Repubblica. You're listening to The Globalist on Monocle 24. Keen for a quick tutorial on where you should take your business over the coming months? The really brilliant products are brilliant, not because of a marketing campaign or it's because they've managed to get some incredible ambassador. They really are good because they add value. Interested to learn how one of the world's biggest pharma companies responded to the pandemic? We need what's called warm preparedness. So we need public health systems that have the supplies ready, at least for the initial phase of a pandemic. Curious about the future of air travel? Everybody's looking forward to connect with the world, connect with friends around the world and just spend some leisure time and some relaxing time abroad. Or wondering whether shops will still matter. There's thousands of different journeys through the store that anyone who walks in could take. From CEOs to editors-in-chief, CMOs to chief strategy officers, our series is a fast-paced, intimate discussion with chiefs, big and small, from around the world. That's The Chiefs right here on Monocle 24 or wherever you find finer podcasts. It's 14 minutes past nine in Tel Aviv, 14 minutes past seven here in London. Following the November the 1st election in Israel, in which the Jewish far right surged, former Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu received an official mandate yesterday to form a new government. Netanyahu pledged he would seek national consensus. Well, I'm joined now by Anshel Fafa, who is a writer for Haaretz, based in Jerusalem. Uh, Anshel, many thanks for joining us on Monocle 24. Uh, President Isaac Herzog noted that Israel's longest-serving premier has received enough recommendations from like-minded parties to secure 64 of Parliament's 120 seats. Does this put Netanyahu on the path to be one of, to have one of the most stable governments in years? I mean, is this the end of this recent cycle of constant elections? Well, on paper, he has a majority of 64 members from among the 120 members of the Knesset. So that's not a large majority, but it's relative, at least to what we've seen in the past, quite stable. However, the fact that they've endorsed him as prime minister does not yet mean he can form a government. He first of all has to sign coalition agreements with them. And now we're in that stage in in the Israeli electoral process where the endorsements have come in. Now he has to sit with his endorsees, uh, and so those who've endorsed him, his endorsers, and uh, work out agreements with them. And this means also deciding on the new government's policies, uh, funding, 
uh, in uh, probably the most difficult thing is to work out who gets which ministries, which cabinet positions, and since he is basically at the mercy of his of his partners because he, he needs them for a majority, this isn't as easy a uh, process as, as he perhaps was hoping. And what we're at the stage we're at is where he's trying to somehow contain all these all these demands, balance between them, keep something for his only good party. And it's not going to be an easy few days for Netanyahu. And do we have any indication of who's going to get what? Well, there's all kinds of names being thrown around for the most senior cabinet jobs. We know that the head of the Jewish power party, the the most radical element perhaps of this new government, has been demanding the public security ministry. That's a possibility. There are other names, but until... Until the deals are signed, we don't know who's, who's going to get what. It's all it's all speculation and, and leaks to the media. Mm. Uh, Netanyahu has, uh, when he took up the challenge to form the new government, he did uh, lay out some of his policies. What did he say on the economy? Well, he actually hasn't said anything that uh, detailed in the in the three speeches he's given since uh, since election night. He hasn't talked about policies. He's been very close on that. He's waiting to see what. The parties and the parties who are going to be in his coalition have submitted very detailed policy demands and he's obviously going to want to moderate some of them to try and make them slightly less radical because it's not the way he usually works. Um, so in, in I, I'm sorry to disappoint you, but right now there isn't a clear policy emerging. They're just lots of demands from his uh, from his partners. Mm. Uh, just looking at regional relationships, there have been some suggestions of bad chemistry between Israel's new leader and the, the Turkish president. Uh, the two countries have recently restored full diplomatic relations, but a recent poll said 65% of Turks didn't support the improvement of ties with Israel. How do you see that relationship with Turkey developing? Well, I think that if you ask most uh, world leaders, they'll tell you that, that, that the relations with Mr. Erdogan are not an easy thing. So I don't think that's necessarily the issue facing Netanyahu right now. I mean, Erdogan does what, whatever works in his interest. And if he currently thinks that it's better for him to have a stronger relationship with Israel, then he will. And he's been over the last couple of years almost reversing from his previous very anti-Israel positions to a more a more accommodating Stance, and I don't think that's necessarily going to change just because the prime minister of Israel has changed. And I think the same is is true about most uh, world leaders. They're not. It's not so much. You know, we tend to take the personalities more uh, more important than than the country's interests. And I think that the the interests of the countries which are currently engaging with Israel remain more or less the same. And I think some of the leaders that we're talking about, certainly the more authoritarian minded leaders, actually enjoy working with with Netanyahu. They see him as a kindred spirit. Mm, mm. And I mean, his government does look to be the most right-wing in Israel's history. Is this the end of diversity in Israeli politics? Well, diversity is always a word you bandied around in every country, something that doesn't necessarily mean what it says. But yes, we have had the most diverse Israeli government in Israeli history for the last 17 months. I'm not sure uh, that was necessarily something that was going to last for very long. It was... uh, it was a government with the slimmest of majorities, and the diversity of it was also one of its weaknesses, uh, and one of the reasons why it didn't last much more than a, than a year. Uh, this is certainly not going to be a diverse government, assuming it's the government based on the parties which have endorsed it. And now it's going to be very right-wing, quite religious. Um, that's that, that's already a given, but it doesn't mean that this government is going to be the 
like every every government following it. It, it could be, you know, the, the previous government was something that no no one imagined could happen, and it doesn't mean that we won't have governments like that in the future. And right now, it doesn't look very good if you, if if the, if diversity is a is a standard. Mm. Uh, and finally, Angel, when can we expect to hear Netanyahu's final coalition lineup? So as of yesterday, when he received the mandate from the from the president, he's got 28 days to form a government. He wanted to have it all wrapped up this week when the new Knesset tomorrow is uh, is sworn in. That's not going to happen unless unless there's a sudden breakthrough. Because right now the coalition talks are are, are not going very uh, very well. So it'll probably take a couple of weeks. It could be less. It could be more. Nobody's expecting this time the 28 days to expire, but it really is a difficult job to, to accommodate all these very uh, detailed sh- and very ambitious list of demands by, by the different parties. And Netanyahu is going to have to take a while in getting this done. I'll, I'll be surprised if it's finished this week. Anshul, thank you very much indeed. That was Anshul Fafa, who is uh, with Heretz in Jerusalem. Still to come on the programme, Vicky Price will bring us the latest economic news. Bruno Ferreira-Gasses reviews the day's papers. And the translator of Parasite tells us about the art of subtitles. Korean has a very different word order than English. Sometimes you have to kind of twist and make it sound slightly unnatural in English. But if the timing is right, then it's worth that slight awkwardness. This is The Globalist. Stay tuned. UBS is a global financial services firm with over 150 years of heritage. Built on the unique dedication of our people, we bring fresh thinking and perspective to our work. We know that it takes a marriage of intelligence and heart to create lasting value for our clients. It's about having the right ideas, of course, but also about having one of the most accomplished systems and an unrivaled network of global experts. That's why at UBS, we pride ourselves on thinking smarter to make a real difference. Tune in to The Bulletin with UBS every week for the latest insights and opinions from UBS all around the world. U.S. midterm elections, the Democrats took control of the U.S. Senate when Catherine Cortez Master won a narrow victory in Nevada late on Saturday. Well, Scott Lucas is a U.S. political expert. He's just returned from America yesterday. Scott, thanks so much for for coming on so recently after your your journey. Uh, Why is this Senate win important? Well, the immediate importance of the win is that it knocks back the narrative which was being spread not only by the Republican Party, but by much of the U.S. media of this so-called red wave, that the Republicans would overwhelm uh, the Democrats in many states, take a large majority or a significant majority in the House and in the Senate, and not only block the Biden administration from uh, legislation over the next two years, but begin to impose its own legislation. For example, we could have uh, further threats to women's rights, abortion rights. We could have further crackdown on immigration. Uh, we could have, in effect, a Republican counter-revolution uh, to, to remove a lot of the legislation, 
historic legislation that had been passed between 2000 and uh, 21 and 2000 uh, until uh, the end of this year. That's no longer going to be possible. Uh, I don't think the slim Democratic majority in the Senate will mean that the Biden administration will achieve as much as it has in the first two years, um, especially with the Republicans probably having a slim majority in the House. But it does mean that a lot of the achievements will be sustained. Mm. And does this mean that the Georgia Senate runoff on the 6th of December is no longer a, a pivotal contest or does that result still matter? Well, it still matters, Georgina. Uh, the, Repo- the Democrats at this point have 50 Senate seats. So the, even if they lose Georgia, you have it's as you were, just as over the past two years, we have a 50 50 Senate with Vice President Kamala Harris as the deciding vote. But if you get a 51-49 majority, it means, for example, that the Democrats can afford the loss of one senator and still put through some legislation. And to give you an example of why that was important, there was a West Virginia Democrat, Joe Manchin, who almost single-handedly held up the Build Back Better agenda for climate change, for health care, for economic progress. He held it up for more than a year. Uh, If the Democrats had had a 51-49 majority in the first two years of the Biden administration, they could have achieved even more than they did. Mm. Um, Scott, how united is the GOP? Could internal divisions make them less of a threat? I mean, we're seeing a lot of attacks now on, on Donald Trump. Is the party dividing over him? There's already a civil war within the Republican Party, Georgina. And in fact, it's it's part of the reason why the Republicans didn't do as well as expected. But I think that intensifies. The first area where you see that is, is finally, after being codependent on Trump for years, establishment Republicans will hit back at him. Uh, I think you're going to see not only on Capitol Hill, the idea that the Trumpists are too extreme, you're going to see Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, who wants to be president in 2024, trying to knock Trump down to size. But you're also going to see a civil war where the Trumpists are going to go after the Senate minority leader, Mitch McConnell, one of the most powerful men in Washington. It is possible that within the next few weeks, they will try to remove him as the minority leader. And if that happens, it it, it is an all-out battle that will cripple the Republicans um, as they try to face the next few years of the Biden administration. Do you think Trump will announce a run for 2024? He wants to. I mean, he wants to. And the rumor is that he was is going to do it on Tuesday. Indeed, it, it was said by well-informed sources, Trump wanted to declare a run for the presidency the day before the election which would, of course, cause chaos. You don't announce you're going to run for president uh, just before voters go to the polls trying to put your senators and representatives into power. Uh, so I think even those advisors are telling Trump, you really should hold off here, assess what you want to do. Yeah, it's possible we could see him making the announcement this week. Um, I just want to look at, at international affairs here. Uh, Joe Biden's meeting with China, Xi Jinping this week. And of course, as we know, relations between the US and China have soured, particularly over Taiwan. What are the red lines that Biden mentioned? What can we expect from these talks? Because they have been billed as the most significant in-person meeting between the two countries in years. Well, I think in terms of the immediate relations, Georgina, in a much quieter way before this week's meeting, we had already seen lines being drawn and more importantly, respected by both sides. You might recall that this summer, there were a lot of folks who expected military confrontation over Taiwan. Uh, the Chinese beat their chest quite loudly when the House Speaker Nancy Pelosi visited there. But at that time, Xi and Biden spoke by phone 
and and effectively what was said is look washington said to beijing you don't attack taiwan militarily try to overrun it uh beijing said to washington okay you don't uh make any moves to support the independence of taiwan and that's the deal that i think will hold there will continue to be the wider competition there will be china continuing to expand its military capabilities there will continue to be a battle of economic systems which will be on a global scale there will continue to be issues for example of technological espionage but in a way the 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 xi biden phone call is to continue to reiterate the rules of the game even if the two countries are competitors rather than allies. Scott, thank you very much indeed. That's Scott Lucas there. Here's what else we're keeping an eye on today. Ukraine's President Volodymyr Zelensky has accused Russian forces of committing hundreds of war crimes in Kherson. Investigators are attempting to assess the scale of the atrocities following Russia's decision to withdraw from the southern Ukrainian city. Turkish police have arrested a suspect following yesterday's bomb attack in Istanbul. Six people were killed and dozens more were injured in the explosion in a busy shopping district. Turkish officials say the Kurdistan Workers' Party was behind the attack. US Republicans have become embroiled in a row over who was to blame for the party's poor performance in midterm elections. Donald Trump's critics have blamed him for the outcome, whilst Trump's supporters have pointed the finger at Senate leader Mitch McConnell. And Slovenia has elected its first ever female head of state. The 54-year-old lawyer, Natasha Pierce Musa, ran as an independent with the backing of Slovenia's centre-left government. This is The Globalist. Stay tuned. Let's turn to Egypt now, where week two of COP27 officially kicks off today. One of the latest announcements saw the launch of the Forest and Climate Leaders Partnership, or FCLP, where over 26 countries, along with the European Union, voluntarily committed to end and reverse deforestation by 2030. The initiative was first muted last year in Glasgow, as the UK played host to last year's summit COP26. So, for Zach Goldsmith, the UK's Climate and Environment Minister of State, it was a big deal to see it come to fruition this year at Sharm el-Sheikh. Monocle's Carlotta Ribello caught up with Lord Goldsmith at COP27, and he started by telling her what the initiative is all about. So the pledge is actually the one that was made at COP26, which was 145 countries representing 91% of the world's forests committing to end and reverse deforestation this decade. And we had donor countries and philanthropists committing $20 billion to help them do it. We had commitments from the big agricultural traders, the multilateral development banks and financial institutions all committing to align with that same agenda. And what this is about, the FCLP, this new initiative, is creating an annual moment, high level, where all those promises can be adjudicated, can be tested, so that the countries with forests and the donor countries and the philanthropists and everyone can be held to account for the promises that they made. The anxiety we have, like everyone, is that you hear a lot of promises at climate cops and then those promises don't materialize. They just languish on paper. And we want to be absolutely certain that we honor this package of commitments and that we do genuinely end and reverse deforestation by the end of the decade. And if I could add one thing, a big part of it is the 
commitment made to indigenous people and local communities. And in a sense, that's the most important part. You know, 80% of the world's forest biodiversity is in indigenous lands and they get no support. They're quite often they're persecuted. So if we follow through with the commitment we've made around land tenure, the one and a half billion dollar commitment from donors, if we follow through with that properly, we will have a massive impact, really huge impact on nature and then in turn climate change. You touched upon there, of course, of the communities that are the most impacted by deforestation and climate inaction. How important is it for the UK to be involved in this conversation and, as you just mentioned, to help raise awareness and engage with the appropriate leaders and the appropriate industries to get the message across? Is that what yeah. is the aim of you being here at COP, for example? Yeah, so our role now, you know, obviously we pull together the forest package at COP26, so we feel a responsibility to make sure it happens. But it's also an international priority for us, climate change. And we know there's no solution to climate change without nature. Nature is always left out of these discussions, but it's the biggest part of the solution to climate change. And land degradation is one of the biggest causes of climate change. So unless we repair our relationship with nature, we're never going to solve climate change. And also all the other problems. We know that when you destroy ecological systems that provide free services like clean air and water and prevent floods and hold water during the dry periods and so on. If we destroy those systems, you plunge whole communities into terrible poverty. So nature really is the key. It's the answer to almost every question. And that, that is reflected in our position as a country. It's a top international priority. So we will use whatever levers we have through trade, through aid, and all the other tools that, that governments have in order to take this agenda forward. And that's why I'm here. Now, you mentioned how important it is to deliver on said promises and it seems very much like the message of this edition of COP is action. Yeah. What are some of the ways that the UK government is trying to take action on that promise? So for example, the pledge that we made for indigenous people, you know, we are a contributor to that but there are many other donors as well. So we have been coordinating very regularly over the last year round tables of those donors to align the way we spend the money, to hold each other to account and make sure that the the money begins to flow and it is this FCLP that you asked me about at the beginning of this discussion that is a UK initiative designed to create a high-level annual moment where those promises can be where we can judge countries for having kept those promises so that's a long-term systemic thing we have which hopefully will inject accountability and then we have our own commitments you know we committed 200 million pounds to the Amazon and we are in the process of spending that money. We committed finance for the Congo Basin, for indigenous people, for really a whole range of different issues. We committed to doubling our climate finance to 11.6 billion and to spending about 3 billion of that on nature-based solutions. And we heard from the UK Prime Minister yesterday that we're absolutely going to honour those commitments. There were question marks about that. People were asking, is the UK going to backtrack on its commitments? And it was great to hear the Prime Minister very clearly say, no, we're going to honour those commitments and we're going to see them through. And and of course, that's the right thing to do. That was Monocle's Carlotta Rebello in conversation with Lord Goldsmith in Sharm el-Sheikh, Egypt at COP27.
It is 8.36 in Zurich, 7.36 here in London and 4.36 in Sao Paulo. Well, let's continue now with today's newspapers. Joining me in the studio is the Asia Digital Editor with the BBC World Service, Bruno Ferreira-Garces. Welcome, Bruno. Thank you. Uh, Shall we start with the South China Morning Post? And this is a really interesting story showing that China sends more students to US universities than any other nation. Uh, This is despite a lot of bilateral unease. Yes, that's despite a lot of bilateral unease, and we'll talk more about that shortly as well on a related topic. But And it also comes after there were serious feuds between the U.S. and even with investigations into supposed ties of, of students coming to the U.S. But this survey shows that over 290,000 students came to American institutions of higher education between 2021 and 2022. It's down 8.6% compared with previous year, but in spite of that, it's still quite high given the the unease and the tensions and even suspicions that were aroused by intelligence agencies in the U.S. and But it's also an influx that is necessary for American institutions. These are students in uh, mainly studying, uh, studying what is what is called to be STEM subjects, maths and science, and these are crucial areas. Really. Mm, uh, absolutely. And of course, it's a big money spinner for U.S. colleges. Definitely so. So they need that money and they need to attract that audience, really. Well, let's look at what else is happening between China and the US, because as we were discussing earlier in the programme, uh, Joe Biden meets Xi Jinping tonight on the uh, sidelines of the G20. Uh, and of course, Taiwan uh, is going to be front and central of those discussions, but also things like chips. Uh, tell us more. Well, precisely. So this is uh, an attempt to break the ice between China and the U.S. after the falling of of the relations at their lowest point since most likely the even late 70s when there was a reapproachment. But as you mentioned, I think there's the, the relations are more complex and intertwined than maybe both countries would wish for. I think... Uh, High-developed high chips is one of the topics on the agenda, no doubt about. I think uh, protection of Taiwan will be a, an item that will surely be emphasized by the U.S. It's possible that in one way or another they will contemplate the, uh, the war between Russia and Ukraine. And I think Xi has already signaled that discreetly and subtly that he's not wasn't too happy about it but Russia and Putin is a strong ally of China it but that's something that is likely to figure it some way even if discreetly so so it's it'll be interesting to see what will come out of this meeting even if you need to read between the lines. Mm. And I wonder uh, if climate will come up on that. I think that, that there is, um, of course, there's quite a lot of collaboration between, there has been on, on COVID-19, but also on the climate emergency. Yes, I think uh, there has been, China has been making some very big inroads in relation to uh, finding alternative sources of energy and curbing its uh, uh, main sources of of 
pollution and so forth. And so I think they will try to strike some form of agreements in that front as well, it's, or at least signal to that. Mm. Uh, another rapprochement going on, this is time between Japan and South Korea. This is a story in the Asia Nikkei Review. Tell us more. So, yeah, so the, uh, Japan and South Korea summit that aims to push to resolve some thorny wartime issues. I think what the challenge that uh, at this moment uh, South Korea faces is that it's threading a very fine line between uh, seeking warmer relations with China while at the same time not uh, hoping to upset its main li- ally, which is the U.S., facing increasing challenges from North Korea. That's why it needs to bridge the gap and uh, with some traditional rivals as well, and Japan namely being probably the main one. Uh, and tell us about the, 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 the main issue here. But this is, it all goes back to wartime labor. Yes, I think there's, there's a series of thorny issues related to that, to that uh, period in which Japan has never apologized for some would say atrocities that it committed in those eras. I think uh, labor being one of them, I think the issue of the so-called comfort women in which women were forced into sex work in uh, during the Japanese occupation of South Korea. So there's a series of issues that Japan has never fully addressed or addressed at all. So I think there is a, an attempt at, at this late in time to to try to address some of those issues. Mm. Uh, And then finally, let's have a look at the New York Times. Really interesting piece here about US investigators being hired under false pretenses. Yes, so this is a very interesting investigative piece by the New York Times on how authoritarian governments like Iran and China are attempting to surveil, harass, threaten and even repatriate dissidents living lawfully in the United States by using private investigators in the in the US. It's certainly a topic that would render a great Netflix series or a podcast. <laughs> what are they trying to do exactly and who's doing this? Well, that's the thing. The interesting thing is that they're following the law, but in their they use private investigators to to even uh, surveil uh, people that are under their watch. With the with the goal of pro- possibly even extraditing them to to their home countries, where they would face you know hefty sentences, uh, rigged trials, and so forth. But in in, in I mean, as somebody's quoted here, going, this is low risk state sponsored terrorism. That's the thing. It's uh, there, and not only that, it's a very shrewd move in which they use the laws of a democratic country to implement an extremely authoritarian and shady policy. But I mean, surely there must be vetting in place, and surely it's illegal to work for those states. I think there is that, but probably they use a different front to conceal where this is actually coming from and who's who's hiring the job in the first place as well. Thank you very much indeed. Uh, And uh, that's a a story I'm sure we'll have another look at again because it looks like there's a lot more to uncover. Uh, That was Bruno Ferreira-Gasses and this is The Globalist on Monocle 24. (laughs) 
UBS has over 900 investment analysts from over 100 different countries. Over 900 of the sharpest minds and freshest thinkers in the world of finance today. To find out how we could help you, contact us at UBS.com. It's time to talk business now with Vicky Price, who's economist and former joint head of the UK government's economic service. Good morning to you, Vicky. Good morning. Uh, the autumn statement. We're all looking forward to this. Where will Jeremy Hunt's axe fall? Well, that's very interesting. And we don't quite know what's going to happen in terms of public spending cuts. So that's one way that uh, they're looking at filling that black hole, if you like, in finances, which are estimated possibly anywhere between 50 and 70 billion over the next few years. So that's one uh, area of possible cuts. Uh, not only are they looking at current spending, so in other words, what happens to normal services, except of course, the National Health Service that needs it more, uh, and also defense where there's a bit of commitment because of Ukraine to spend uh, additional sums between now and 2030. But other services may be affected. But it's really the concern that many businesses have is that there could be cuts in capital spending so infrastructure projects, we're already talking about the possibility of, uh, you know, looking again at HS2, which is the main uh, line linking London to the Midlands and then going up further north. So that northern bit may be axed, already been suggested that it will be. And then we're looking at the whole northern powerhouse rail infrastructure area that could be affected. And then on the tax side, of course, uh, we could have increases across the board. Uh, not only will personal taxation revenues increase because the stealth taxes, what you do is you don't raise your allowances and therefore you collect more, particularly when you have inflation. Uh, and that could be extended to almost the end of this decade uh, when they announced that on Thursday. And they were already frozen for the next few years. So that's going to bring loads more people into the into starting to pay tax for the first time. And also millions will start paying tax at the higher rate. And then, of course, you have the possibility, lots of leaks about capital gains taxes. Maybe that allowance there will be halved before you start paying it. Uh, the threshold for VAT registration may also be frozen. And so, so quite a lot going on there. And, uh, and the worry is that perhaps if you add both public spending cuts and tax increases, you know, the economy will probably you know, grow even more slowly than what the Bank of England forecasts when it raised interest rates uh, just last week. And what about windfall taxes? Oh, yes. Those, of course, have already been pre-announced. We have an energy tax, uh, which uh, is uh, expected to be increased, possibly, so uh, so that companies pay more and for longer. Uh, and also, maybe, because the Labour has been asking for this, of course, quite strongly, uh, remove some of those investment allowances that were given to companies. So, in other words, if you invest in the North Sea in particular, you were getting very large percentage of whatever you spend back. So basically, you weren't paying any of that uh, increased profit tax that you were going to pay anyway. So if that gets abolished, perhaps next year, I'm not sure how soon they can start doing that, then that will give perhaps a little bit more to the Treasury as well. So yes, windfall taxes are also what you know, considered and uh, leaked quite extensively. So yes, there will be a combination of 
oh, capital gains taxes changing, personal tax increases happening through the back door and more tax on businesses, which will perhaps satisfy the sort of phrase that Jeremy Hunt, the Chancellor, has used, which is, you know, everybody will have to pay more tax somehow or other. And they're also going to have to pay more for their energy bills because the government is in talks about raising that energy price cap. Well, that's a serious issue and serious concern for everybody. Uh, we need to remember, of course, the saga of all this. I mean, first of all, Liz Truss, when she was prime minister, announced that there was going to be an electricity price freeze at £2,500 on average for households. And that would last for two years. Well, the first thing that happened, of course, uh, is that that was almost reversed. So it's only going to last now for six months. And then who knows what's going to happen. So that adds to huge uncertainty for households. And then businesses, of course, which didn't like it anyway because it was only six months now six months for everyone and there would be a review after three months to see perhaps which sectors were going to be most in need of support and now of course it's going to be a review of which individual households need more support and which businesses need more support but what it means is that if you're looking either to decide on your spending in the future as a household and what to cut back or if you're looking as a company whether you're going to be investing or not well that's hardly going to be uh, particularly helpful if you just don't know what's happening and the the sad thing is that when you're looking again what the economy is doing um, you've seen that a lot of the confidence indicators, business confidence indicators, have slumped very, very uh, severely. In some cases, they've come down to where they were at the beginning of the pandemic. So it doesn't say much about what type of investment and therefore growth we may have in the future. Yeah. Now, in terms of growth, uh, the CBI is pointing out that without enough people to work in, in our economy, that's not possible. Now, this goes back to the migration deal with France that's just been uh, announced. Uh, Britain is going to pay France. France more. Um, but but as I say, the, 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 the Times points out that the CBI says there must be more legal migration. And this comes at the same time as a news alert's coming up saying Sunak says getting a grip on the migrant crisis is an absolute priority. Well, which is it? Are we trying to keep people out or bring people in? That's very interesting. But of course, uh, what we're talking about in terms of the deal with France is illegal migration. So it's uh, using routes uh, which have not been approved, which basically involve uh, people crossing the channel in, in, in little boats. Um, France has been asking for more money. It's getting more money. So when people are saying there's a new deal being struck, actually, I think the French are getting the extra money that they're expected to get in order to increase their own sort of policing and um, uh, and involvement in all this. So that's good news in a way. But of course, what the CBI in particular, the Confederation of British Industry is talking about is legal migration, that we need to increase the number of areas where we consider that there are shortages and therefore allow more visas to be given there is no doubt that Brexit has affected you know, the availability of labour quite significantly. Uh, the problem we have here in the UK, but we've seen it in other countries, in the US in particular, but not so much in Europe, is that people have exited the market um, from the labour market, in other words. So uh, people have decided not to not to go back to work since COVID. But also, in addition, in the UK, we've lost lots of people post-Brexit who've gone back to the EU during COVID and then have not come back and cannot come back very easily any longer. So costs have increased for businesses. And what the CBI is asking for and other business leaders, frankly, is is more support, both uh, in the short term, um, in terms of energy bills and so on, but also in the longer term, because what you require right now is some sort of plan for growth. And we don't have one at present. And they're worried about possible cuts in R&D spending, for example, support for innovation, which is an absolute must, and uh, worried that the long-term growth of the economy will be affected forever. And indeed, when you look at some of the Bank of England forecasts, 
we come out of the recession in a couple of years' time, according to their figures, and then we have very anemic growth, mm. you know, not growing more than, you know, if we're lucky, 1%, which is not good news in terms of international and competitiveness. Vicky, thank you very much indeed. That was Vicky Price there. And this is The Globalist on Monocle 24. Darcy Parquet is an American film critic and a subtitle translator based in Seoul who worked on the Oscar-winning Korean film Parasite. He originally started focusing on Korean cinema as a way to learn the language, but after launching his blog about the genre, his film career took off. Well, he's in town for the London Korean Film Festival and he stopped by Midori House to tell Monocle's Laura Kramer about the booming Korean film industry and his joy when Parasite won Best Picture at the Oscars. You know, for years, I've seen the Korean film industry kind of grow and all these interesting films that have come out over the years, but it's always been really difficult to have the rest of the world really notice, you know, the things that are going on in Korea. And then to have one film break through, I mean, not only to get a nomination or to uh, receive some of the other Oscars, but to take home Best Picture was just mind-blowing. That was a huge moment. But in general, it seems the Korean film industry has been on a massive roll. It's true. I I think the quality has been there for a little while, but certainly, you know, you need a certain amount of momentum in order to reach viewers in other countries and to convince them to give a chance to, uh, you know, works from places that they've never been or they're not familiar with. But Korea has required acquired a reputation as being a place that is vibrant in terms of its popular culture. You know, certainly... You know, TV dramas have been very successful for many years, especially in Asia, but, you know, it's spreading around the world and they're finding more and more fans. And so with films as well. There have been several other, you know, breakthroughs over the years. I mean, years ago there was Old Boy, which, you know, attracted a lot of attention. And I remember seeing Stephen King tweeting about Train to Busan and becoming very excited because it just seemed unreal. In recent years, it's just, it's accelerated. So, you know, Squid Game was just incredible and Parasite as well. As a translator... I wondered what your thoughts were. I remember when Squid Game first came out, the whole conversation, at least in, you know, a lot of international communities and English-speaking countries especially, was, do you watch Squid Game with the dubbing or the subtitles on? <laughs> I know. It's it's kind of fascinating that people are given the option and that there are a lot of countries in Europe that just kind of prefer dubbing and, you know, it's the standard to watch a dubbed version. and then But on Netflix, it's not really established what the standard is. <laughs> I mean, certainly it's a very different experience, and it affects the translation as well. There was a lot of controversy about the choice of translation for this Korean word, oppa, which literally means older brother, but people use it in a lot of different contexts with people that they're not related to. And in the dubbed version, they used the translation old man. And actually, the reason they did that was just because the O sound, when you're translating dubbed works, you have to make the mouth shape correspond to the original language so that when the actor makes an O with his or her lips, then you need an O. (laughs) And so that's why it's old man. You know, it's not because they thought this was the most accurate or, you know, representative translation for that. Uh, With subtitles, thankfully, we don't have to worry about the shape of the mouth. (laughs) I mean, there are a lot of restrictions in terms of subtitle translation, but that's one that we don't have to worry about. I would imagine timing is probably a bigger issue because you don't want to give away what something's about to happen. I hate that in subtitles. I'm very conscious of that because actually if you're not careful, like, you know, a reaction shot 
no longer is a reaction shot because the audience is getting the information too late or in the wrong order. And, you know, Korean has a very different word order than English. Uh, so it does make it a challenge. Sometimes you have to kind of twist and make it sound slightly unnatural in English. But if the timing is right, then it's worth that slight awkwardness in order to get the timing of it right. You've also translated the upcoming film Broker, which was a competition at this year's Cannes Film Festival. The director is Japanese. It's a Korean film, but I imagine that maybe added a few extra challenges as you were doing the subtitles. Yeah, I mean, for years I've been a fan of Koreeda. Uh, <laughs> uh, this is his first time shooting a film in Korea, in Korean. Uh, director Koreeda speaks a little bit of Korean and some English as well. And so there was a lot of translation involved in, in the writing of the screenplay and then translating it into Korean and shooting it in Korean. When the project came to me, initially I was asked to translate the screenplay, and so I did that uh, on my own. And then for the subtitles, because there is a lot that you need to kind of check with the director and to make sure that intent of the director is expressed in the subtitles, we found it more efficient to work by email in this case. There was a, a, an employee at the production company who speaks Korean, English, and Japanese fluently. And so he sat down with the director and explained everything in detail and all the nuance that was in the English. So after a series of back and forth, then we kind of settled on the final translation. But it was a challenge because he's a director who he makes very emotional films. And, you know, you have to kind of pitch it the right way in English and make sure that you don't make it too emotional or non-emotional. You have to pitch it kind of exactly at the level that he's doing in it. As Korean films are being recognized more on the world stage, and there's obviously an awareness of international audiences, are you seeing that the content is also maybe being reshaped more for that? It's a really interesting question because, you know, there was a time when Korean producers and directors just thought of the international market as a, a bonus. <laughs> you made the film for the Korean audience, and if it worked internationally, then that was great. It was kind of an unexpected paycheck that you received. Of course, now everyone's very aware of the international potential for Korean cinema. It's an interesting question, though, because if you set out to target global audiences. You know, your concept of the audience is very abstract. Whereas on the other hand, if you make a film that's targeting the Korean audience, I think it's much easier for Korean filmmakers and producers to visualize that audience. And so in a way, I think that specificity helps in creating a, a tighter script and a script that has more interest. Even if you're targeting this uh, content at a global market, then uh, it might be best to really keep the Korean audience in mind initially and then just kind of market it as strongly as you can. Darcy Fake there in conversation with Laura Kramer. And that's all for today's programme. Thanks to our producers, Rhys James, Laura Kramer and Christy O'Grady. Our researchers, Lillian Fawcett and Emily Sands and our studio manager, Sarah Nicholl, with editing assistance from Carlotta Ribello. I'm Georgina Godwin and The Globalist returns the same time tomorrow. Thanks for listening. <laughs>